Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 3rd, 2022. We are into the new year. Uh, first show of 2022 was earlier this morning. Talked to Bruce Clark, um, Northern Ireland-based historian, on his new book, Athens, City of Wisdom. And of course, when speaking of Athens, we inevitably talked about Socrates, the Greek uh, Athenian philosopher, um, who died for his city. Uh, the death of Socrates, memorialized by the artist David, um, focuses on Socrates' willingness to die for, I guess, a kind of wisdom, uh, which is memorialized in uh, Plato's uh, dialogue, The Phaedra. Uh, and as a follow-up to this, we have, coincidentally, a book also on wisdom, a different kind of book, not on geography, but on happiness, faith, and meaning by two uh, Notre Dame University-based uh, philosophers, uh, it's called The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through Big que Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning by Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. They're both joining us from um, South Bend, uh, Indiana, where Notre Dame is based. Um, Megan, uh, I know you write a lot about Socrates in the book. Is he the fount of wisdom for The Good Life Method? Should we use his life and perhaps death as a as as a parable or as a paragon of wisdom socrates is definitely a hero for pretty much every philosopher in the western world for the last 2400 years you guys can see the sign behind me in my office corrupt the youth which is a big banner that uh, i take whenever i teach the big god in the good life course it's socrates is the famous charge against socrates was that teaching philosophy corrupted the youth of athens and I think this idea of Socrates as being the kind of person who was fearlessly willing to ask philosophical questions and desperately committed to teaching his friends and his citizens and the people that he loved how to engage in philosophical questioning makes him somebody that a lot of contemporary philosophers want to exemplify, somebody that cared about philosophy as a discipline, but also made it part of his way of life. That said, I think if you read our book and if you talk with me and Paul, you realize that there are a lot of excellent philosophers that are in this tradition that Socrates started. Not all of them are in the European or Western tradition either. I mean, right around, you know, within a couple hundred years of when Socrates was getting his practice off the ground, you have Confucius operating in the Zhou dynasty in China. You've got Buddha operating in, uh, in the southern part of Asia. You've got the wisdom literature growing in the Middle East. So there are a lot of different starting points you can start to look to if you want to understand where you're fitting in with these philosophical traditions. But Socrates is, uh, is certainly one that's captured our imagination for a long time. Does Socrates have a philosophy, uh, Megan? Of course, we know about Socrates from his student, Plato, who doesn't seem to have agreed with Socrates about very much, even though he, he made Socrates the, the central figure in most of his dialogues. Um, what what is Socrates telling us in philosophical terms? Is he just the model 
of a man willing to ask hard, unpleasant questions? It's one of the most difficult topics, actually, in the history of philosophy. What did the historical Socrates, that man, really believe? And what did he think was his mission with his teaching? He famously tells us that he doesn't actually have any philosophical views of his own. He only has questions. Um, he often- Isn't that what a philosopher does though, ask questions? No, so many philosophers have views. Oh my gosh, I've got all kinds of philosophical- Are you a philosopher? <laughs> I'm definitely a philosopher. Uh, Plato, who is Socrates' student, uh, as, as he's reporting on Socrates and how Socrates went around asking his questions and claiming to just care about wisdom, but not thinking of himself as a font of it, Plato eventually loses his taste for this kind of Socratic irony and the Socratic detachment and humility. And by the time we get to versions of Socrates that are presented in like Plato's Republic, we have a lot of substantive ideas and views about mathematics, about the nature of justice that are attributed to Socrates. And of course, in the Republic, uh, Megan, uh, we have a, a political state ruled by philosophers because no one else was wise enough. So I think Plato and Socrates had a very different idea of the role, the place of philosophers in the ideal society. Oh, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, again, it's hard to tell which views are the historical Socrates' views and which views are just Plato speaking on behalf of Socrates. But Plato thought that a very well-educated, tightly controlled certain kind of philosopher should be in charge of absolutely everything in the city. Do you historical agree with that? Socrates, no, absolutely not. I mean, it would have been a disaster if Plato's plans for building Callipolis had succeeded. We would have been ruled by these kind of heartless mathematicians. But you can still think that we should be ruled by love of wisdom and by these kinds of uh, love of questioning and evidence and thinking about what's ultimately important without thinking that Plato had worked out the right system for reinventing Athenian democracy. Let's bring Paul in. Paul, um, did Socrates have a philosophy? What's, um, what's your sense of what Socrates can teach us in terms of the good life method? Yeah, so... In, uh, in the course that we teach here at Notre Dame, which is uh, what the, the book is actually based on, each of the days that we teach, uh, we have a, kind of a catchphrase or a motto, some claim that we're asking students to consider and to interrogate from different angles. And the one that we use when we introduce Socrates is uh, question everything, right? Uh, and we say, look, Socrates meant this really literally. He, he had a kind of skepticism uh, that goes deeper than the skepticism I think most of us are comfortable with. We all want to be critical and, and skeptical. We certainly don't want to be gullible and just believe anything that we read or see. Uh, but Socrates was, was so committed to this. Uh, and one of the big questions that we ask in that class is why, right? What, what's behind, what's motivating uh, this kind of deep skepticism, right? Uh, and one of the answers that we explore with our students is that it's just a love of the truth, right? Uh, a lot of philosophers uh, will, will claim that there are certain good things out there, certain goals that we can have uh, that no good life would lack. That if you have a life that's missing one of these things, you're just not living a, a complete or good life, right? Uh, Aristotle famously says this about friendship. He says, without friendship, no man would choose to live though he has all other goods. Uh, for Socrates, he, he very literally uh, sort of as depicted by Plato, he, he puts his, his uh, money where his mouth is and he says, look, if I can't question everything, if I can't pursue the truth, 
my life is not even worth living, right? So that's, that's and, he, a, and in the end, of course, he 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 gave up that life because uh, he was given the choice of leaving the city, or, yeah, uh, and, and he chose to die. Um, you mentioned Aristotle, the other founding philosopher in the Western tradition. What does Aristotle teach us about the good life that um, Plato and and Socrates have failed to communicate, Paul? I think one of the things that Aristotle teaches us is that uh, is that we have goal structured, goal oriented lives. We might naturally kind of discover this, right? We we sort of set goals for ourselves. We accomplish these goals, and we think like, oh, that was that was pleasant, that was enjoyable. I, I should you know set more goals. Uh, but Aristotle has very substantive views about the kinds of goals we ought to be setting for ourselves, and he actually has claims about goals that we already have, right? So. He starts out uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics, his very famous uh, book about how to live well, about how to live virtuously, uh, by claiming that happiness is the ultimate end of everything that we do, right? Ultimately, whenever we act, we're trying to be happy, right? And that uh, this kind of happiness has a particular shape. It's not just feeling good in the moment. It's not even sort of long-term uh, subjective well-being, right? Uh, he's got very, you know, particular views about what that happiness consists in, and, and he, you know, makes arguments. We can go through the arguments, and you know, we do this with our students. We say, you know, is, is that a good argument or not? But uh, he makes arguments that uh, unless you achieve virtue, unless you acquire certain virtues, uh, you're not going to be happy, right? And I think that's uh, a fantastic starting point uh, when you're starting to look at philosophy. Uh, let's uh, l- let me bring. Um... Uh, uh, let me bring um, Megan back in. Uh, Megan, what's your sense of Aristotle's role in our search for happiness, faith, and meaning? Many people have treated Aristotle as a a pre-monotheistic philosopher, perhaps in contrast, certainly with Socrates and maybe even with with Plato. Although you know, Plato is of course used also in that context. What's your sense of the importance of Aristotle? I think we're tempted to treat Aristotle as this figure who belongs in a museum or who's a book, who writes books that are interesting works of history, but not actually guidebooks for how we live now, which I think is doing a disservice to his philosophy and also not really understanding the power of philosophy as Anxious thought history. about it. One thing that I really love about Aristotle is if you're reading his classic text on the good life, the Nicomachean Ethics, very early on in the second chapter, Aristotle tells his students, and he tells us, that the reason why we think about these philosophical questions is not so that we can know more philosophy facts, not so that we can know what virtue is defined as, but so that we can be happier. The idea being that asking questions the way Socrates taught us how to ask them, looking for these deeper truths and philosophical values and the events in our day-to-day lives is going to actually make our 2022 lives better than they would be otherwise. Uh, And I think that's a really important insight from Aristotle that's worth taking a lot more seriously at universities and for people that like to read and think about philosophy, realizing that these traditions are still very much alive. Uh, The subtitle of your book is Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith and Meaning. Um, Why are those the big questions? What happens if you're not interested in faith or even happiness? 
if you're not interested in happiness, I don't totally believe you. Or I, I've never met somebody uh, who's well, not I don't know if Socrates was particularly concerned with happiness, was he? Uh, it depends on what you mean by happiness. But if you understand it the way those Greek philosophers did as the good life, Socrates was desperately concerned with the good life. He famously exhorts us in the Apology, my fellow Athenians, I love you, but I am not going to cease from teaching you how to care about the ultimate things that are valuable in life rather than fame and honors and money and all the things that we mistake for being the good life. So Socrates is one of the uh, earliest champions of caring about full-fledged, full-blown philosophical happiness. Now, this can't be confused with just this idea of happiness as something that is feeling good at a particular moment or having the right kinds of pleasures. There are some philosophers that think that the good life is about this unrestricted pursuit of pleasure, but that's not these philosophers that we want to introduce you to in the book. If you're not interested in happiness, one, I think you really need to talk to some folks because probably there's something going on in your life. Um, Maybe you have to go to a psychologist. You might need to go to a psychologist or, or maybe give the book a shot because you're in a really dark philosophical place and you maybe don't know. Uh, how so to the book might cheer you up. The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through Big Questions of Happiness, Faith and Meaning. Um, certainly has a break, I, I do want to talk about uh, modern philosophy, but let's also talk. Uh, your book uh, touches on Marcus uh, Aurelius, um, uh, a Roman philosopher and, and, and that tradition. What do the post-Socratic or post-Athenian philosophers, particularly of Rome, bring uh, to our struggle, our search for the good life, um, Megan? I'll start off, but then I'll pitch this question over to Paul because he's our expert teacher on the Stoics. I think Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they get the ball rolling, again, in the Western world, and you have similar figures doing similar work in other parts of the world. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is there are phases in European history where we lose touch with one or another of these ideas. Aristotle was lost to the Western world for a little while and then came back through Islamic scholars. But for the Romans and for the medieval philosophers and basically for the 2400 years after these guys were writing and thinking, people have been inspired to take up the work that they saw as the primary work of philosophers, namely asking these questions about what will make us ultimately happy and what kinds of habits we need to develop to endure all the challenges that life throws at us. And the Stoics are a really fantastic example of people who thought that philosophy could help us, the people that are reading and practicing philosophy, both then and now, live better lives. Know, Paul, did you- no, want... let, let, let me bring Paul in. Paul, um, the Stoic, Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius are sort of back in fashion. Um, what? I'm not sure whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, but in terms of looking for the big questions, happiness, faith, and meaning, how can they help us by looking at a Marcus Aurelius or yeah. other Stoic thinkers in the Roman tradition? So I think uh, Stoicism, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why people are drawn to Stoicism in this moment. Uh, there's some obvious reasons, right? We're, we're sort of in, a, in an anxiety-inducing sort of circumstances uh, generally, and maybe people are looking for any sort of uh, ancient wisdom that can help us sort through and navigate uh, the world that we find ourselves in. But I think the Stoics in particular, uh, they capture some insights uh, that have also been discovered and, and very effectively uh, used in contemporary psychology, right? Uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy, with positive psychology, uh, so some of the advice that the Stoics give us 
uh, just seems to work, right? It seems to work really well. Now, one thing that I think the Stoics can help us see, even about those traditions, is that there are substantive assumptions underlying uh, the kinds of techniques that you use if you're meditating or if you're you know, using mindfulness or becoming more intentional. Uh, and so for me, when I read Marcus Aurelius, I'm always keeping in mind uh, that you know, it, it only works to become more stoic if you think that in doing so, you're aligning yourself with reality in some important way. Uh, so for, for Marcus Aurelius, one reason you know, why you should refocus your energy not on externalities that can sort of come and go and that are totally outside of your control, but, but on things sort of internal to your life, your inner life, is because he thinks that's where the value really lies, right? He thinks there are virtues in there, or there could be virtues in there. Uh, and so if you, you know, practice Stoicism consistently, or if you at least, you know, look kind of at the substantive views behind what Marcus Aurelius is suggesting, I think it helps us clarify our own commitments about value and about the sources of value and about, you know, whether it is uh, more important to invest your energy in a life of action and busyness and, and sort of outward focus uh, and risk, you know, the vulnerabilities that come with that or whether it makes a lot of sense to focus on uh, you know, crafting your soul, as, as some ancient philosophers might put it. That's a nice way of putting it. Crafting your soul is, I guess, in some ways, that's what the good life method is, reasoning through big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning by Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. They're my guests on the show today. Uh, we've talked in the first part of the show about Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, the Stoics. I, I want to, uh, after the break, I want to talk about modern philosophy and how that can help in the good life uh, method. We will be back after about 30 seconds. So hold tight, everyone, and we'll see you after the break. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same. Um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back uh, talking philosophy and the good life 
uh, method with Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, both teach in the philosophy department at Notre Dame University. Um, a few weeks ago, I had uh, a guest, Benjamin J.B. Lipscomb, on four groundbreaking, four groundbreaking female philosophers, two of whom uh, were Elizabeth Anscombe and Iris Murdoch, two very distinguished uh, British philosophers of the mid-20th century at uh, Oxford. And I was intrigued that both of these characters, Lipscomb and Murdoch, show up in The Good Life Method. Um, perhaps, uh, Paul, you might talk about why Anscombe and Murdoch are interesting philosophers in terms of making sense of our lives and of the world and why people might become wiser and happier and more fulfilled if they read them or at least read of them. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Anscombe is one of my absolute uh, favorite philosophers. I think she did some incredible things in the history of philosophy. Uh, in terms of, of you know issues that she can call our attention to, Anscombe was writing in a time where, at least in professional ethics, people thought very consequentially, right? Uh, consequentialism was just sort of coming around. And it's this view that when you're making a moral decision, the thing that matters is just what ends up happening, right? So uh, there's a very famous thought experiment uh, in the history of philosophy. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's the trolley problem. Uh, it's a trolley coming down the yeah, track. She, she invented that problem, yeah, right? Good. Yeah, yeah. So what Anscombe does is, is she calls into question some of the assumptions behind this consequentialist picture, this consequentialist view. Now, I think that's important, first of all, because uh, nowadays this is a view that holds a lot of sway. Uh, there's an entire movement, um, you know, associated with uh, folks like Peter Singer, the effective altruism movement, uh, that is, it's impressive in its reach. A lot of people are effective altruists. A lot of people think the most good you can do, right, is earn as much money as you can and give it away or, um, you know, otherwise sort of- Do you agree it. with that? Do you agree with Singer's position? That's, uh, there's a good. Um, Australian uh, Toby Ord at Oxford also popularizing that idea. Yeah, good. So one of the things uh, that, that we do in the book is we look at the way in which uh, Anscombe helps us interrogate that view. Uh, I actually think it's a mistake, right? I think it's a mistake to focus all of our ethical energy uh, on just the consequences, the sheer consequences of your action. I mean, think think about what your life would look like if you did that, right? Uh, you know, uh, Peter Singer actually has this great example or a couple of examples in, in some of the books that he writes about uh, students that he's taught at Princeton, right, who uh, quit their sort of studies, they, they had ambitions to go on and, and study the arts or the humanities. They quit their studies and they go to Wall Street and they make as much money as they can and they donate it. And I think like that's, that's you know, an incredible and uh, impressive, morally impressive thing to do. Uh, I don't think morality requires it of us, though. And I don't think that uh, in ethics that can't uh, point to other good things uh, in our lives, like crafting your soul, like caring for the essential what happens if you don't believe you have a soul? Yeah, good. So in a way, I suppose uh, you could take that metaphorically, right? Uh, you might think, uh, you know, crafting your soul, developing virtues. Maybe it doesn't depend on really intense metaphysical assumptions about the nature of personhood. Uh, so I, I would assume even if you don't believe you have a soul, you still think, you know, you might have this character that you can cultivate. You can become a better or a worse person, uh, you know, have more virtues or more vices. Um, so I guess I would I would sort of translate it into uh, that talk if if, uh, if you don't want to uh, go in for the metaphysical. Well, assumption. let's uh, let's let's move on to uh, Iris Murdoch, another 
more of a uh, sort of a, a mainstream philosopher as well as a uh, very distinguished novelist. In fact, most of our audience will be more familiar perhaps with Murdoch's fiction than with her philosophy. Um, Megan, what what's interesting about Murdoch um, as uh, a philosopher? What can she teach us about the good life method? So one of the things that we love about Iris Murdoch that I love about her is she's part of this period in mid 20th century philosophy with Elizabeth Anscombe, with Philippa Foote, who really want to encourage us to reject the idea that the only goals that we can have for a morally good life are consequentialist goals. So they face this challenge. You know, I know what it means to say I'm going to value how well I'm doing in my life by the kinds of good consequences I push out in the world. What possibly else could I care about? And Anscombe and Murdoch want to remind us that there are other things that people can set as their goals. And what Murdoch speaks on very beautifully, she takes up a position from Plato and makes it a modern contemporary feminist position. This is the idea that there's a really important dimension of the good life that involves contemplating and paying attention to what's good and what's beautiful. Plato famously tells us that the good life is trying to get ourselves out of this cave of ignorance and out into the light of really understanding truth and beauty. Murdoch tries to take that really metaphorical, mystical dimension to Plato's philosophy and make it much more concrete in her own way as a theory about what it means for us to cultivate loving attention and to care about the ways that we attend to other people, even if we're not doing things to them. So in the book, we try to introduce readers to Iris Murdoch as a philosophical guide to how you might set goals for how you love and care for other people and how you cultivate the inner parts of your life that don't necessarily require you trying to optimize what you do in the world, but instead really attending to how you see the world and how you appreciate it. How would you define being a philosopher? I, you know, we talked earlier about Socrates. Um, we did a show uh, earlier uh, this uh, earlier this um, uh, well late last year on Dostoevsky, wonderful biography, new biography by Kevin Birmingham. Um, is there something about philosophy that makes, say, Dostoevsky not a philosopher? I mean, you know, Murdoch was a professional philosopher in part, Anscombe obviously was also. Um, but is the problem with contemporary philosophy that professional philosophy isn't really very relevant, it's dry, um, and that the real philosophers are the novelists, the Dostoevskys of the world? I mean, I'm tempted to, to have a very liberal notion of who counts as a philosopher. Following Aristotle, it tells us at the beginning of the metaphysics, all men, by their very nature, desire to know. Everybody's asking philosophical questions all the time. The New York Times has philosophy in every story it's publishing right now. The difference is who develops sustained attention to the philosophical questions and tries to improve our methods for answering them, and who just lets things go at the usual kind of informal pace. The same way so you might think- to ask you a philosopher then? I don't know. I, I don't feel like I know enough about Dostoevsky to comment on his methods. He wasn't a professional philosopher. I mean, the difference between a professional philosopher and an ordinary philosopher is the same as the difference between somebody who runs on the weekends for fun or exercises by walking the stairs at work and somebody who's a trainer, somebody who really understands the discipline and is focused really intensely on how this operation works in our lives. 
Dostoevsky was probably somewhere in between. He probably wasn't thoroughly trained in the methods of uh, of the really expert philosophers yeah. in our and tradition. And I, I take your point, but a lot of criticism of contemporary philosophy is it's irrelevant. I mean, can you name me a contemporary philosopher who most of our audience will have heard of, who's written a book that's a bestseller in some way or other, in contrast with, say, Dostoevsky? Oh my gosh! Well, we certainly just mentioned Peter Singer, who well, is yeah. Who, I don't know if Peter Singer is a, a best-selling writer. Most of his best-known work is, I think, on um, lifestyle as opposed to hard philosophy. Has philosophy lost touch with the world, Megan? Is it really relevant these days? Look, I mean. I don't think we're going to get very far at all as a culture or as a people or in our period of history if we don't have professional philosophers. Does uh-huh. that mean that everybody should go out and buy whatever the top selling book among philosophy PhD students right now is? Probably not. The same way it's hard pressed for people to name a living person who works on quantum mechanics. You might need physics for your cell phone to work, but you might not understand what the cutting edge of that physics is right now. I think for a lot of folks who want to see how vibrant and relevant philosophy as an academic discipline is to their lives, they should start with the great works and start to try to get their bearings and understanding. Um, And then as they go through, they'll probably see that there's some absolutely amazing work being done in logic and in moral theory and in metaphysics right now. It's just the kind of work that, like with physics or mathematics or literary theory or any academic discipline, it requires a lot of work to really get up to the cutting edge. Let's bring... uh... Paul back in again. Uh, Paul, the the issues that dominate America are not, I don't think, of what you would call cons- about consequationalism. And I'm not sure whether rereading Iris Murdoch or Elizabeth Anscombe would help, for example, with the perhaps the two biggest issues confronting America in 2022. The first is the division, our inability to talk to one another. We've had tons of shows about this. Peter Coleman, for example, trying to figure out how people of different political opinions can talk to one another. And of course, the other great issue is our environmental crisis. Uh, We've had all sorts of shows on this. We had Eliza Gabbard, for example, on what it means for her generation, a younger generation, to be living in a feeling uh, of, uh, of eternal apocalypse. What can contemporary philosophy help us with both in terms of learning to talk to one another in a respectful, coherent way, and secondly, addressing what seems to some at least to be an environmental apocalypse? Yeah, big questions. Easy uh, questions. Uh, You're a philosopher. I can ask you those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, as a philosopher, I guess like uh, I'm, I'm you know, maybe silly enough to try to answer. I think... Um, Look, I think uh, in my own experience, one of the great rewards of doing philosophy and learning philosophy is uh, being surprised by uh, and excited to pursue the truth with other people, right? I think uh, certainly online, but even in my own family, uh, when I'm having divisive or potentially divisive conversations, uh, there's a way in which we slip into a mentality, like kind of a a zero-sum mentality where somebody Mm. wins and somebody loses, right? Uh, Now, I don't think there are easy ways of getting out of that uh, mentality, uh, you know, from philosophy or anywhere else. But I I do think, and I guess here I'll just sort of testify on the basis of my experience. I do think that that careful, sustained, uh, um, disciplined pursuit 
of the truth in a, a discipline like philosophy or you know, with other people who care about uh, looking at, at these great works of philosophy, it can ignite something in you, right? It can, it can uh, remind you of how pleasurable and how joyful finding the truth with somebody else can be, right? Uh, Plato famously you know, had a sign uh, above his school to let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. Uh, and I always found that very puzzling, right? Uh, but one of the things that, that uh, you know, we talk about in the book is uh, he wanted to remind us, he wanted to remind us that figuring out the truth, figuring out what reality is like is something that you've got to love. It's not just an intellectual skill. It's not just, you know, calculative. It's not just being good uh, at, at, you know, calculating this or that. It's loving uh, what you find when you do that. And so in the book, we give examples, you know, doing a, a simple examples like doing a puzzle or doing a Sudoku or uh uh, you know, doing a quick sort of area map problem or something like that. Uh, and what you do when you do that, especially with other people, is, is you remember, right, that, uh, you know, if I try to figure out the answer to a question, and it's not that you're on the other side trying to figure out a different answer or that, you know, one of us has the answer and we're going to argue about it until somebody's humiliated. But if we're trying to figure that out together because we know this is going to be better for everybody involved if we do that, uh, to me, that sort of philosophical attitude, I'd call it a, a virtue. Uh, that's something that I think can help us move beyond the divisiveness of our time. Um, well, and let's go to then. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I kind of take that, although it's it does, it, it, it's not really particularly convincing. What about the environment, um, Megan? Uh, how, how can the good life method help us confront what at least... Um, uh, sorry, what at least Eliza uh, uh, Gabbert describes as living in an era of the eternal apocalypse. How can philosophy help us make sense of uh, the physical world that seems to be being destroyed outside us? We are absolutely going to need philosophy as we start to try to come up with reasonable goals around the really serious climate crisis, which is probably going to be the most nihilism-inducing crisis that we all face in our lifetime and that our children face. Philosophy is not going to give us really good advice about how to capture carbon from the atmosphere. That's a question for geologists. It's also not going to give us really great advice about how to rearrange our economy to make sense of mass migration. That's going to be a question for social scientists. But one thing philosophy is really good at, and it operates slowly and in community, is helping us figure out which goals are really worth pursuing and which goals are ephemeral. And I think one of the issues we face right now in environmental ethics is trying to just get a good handle on the reasons we have for the particular goals that matter to us, especially when we're thinking about 100, 200 years of human history being on the line. So one interesting way that philosophers contribute to this debate of helping us figure out what our real desires are is by giving us thought experiments. One of the classic thought experiments in environmental ethics right now is imagine, Andrew, you were the last person living on planet Earth and you had the option of detonating a nuclear bomb that would kill all of the other living things, or you had the option not to do it and to just let humanity exit, but the rest of life go on. What would you do? In thinking about that question and answering it, you start to get a sense about how you value the natural non-human world and that could very well guide your practical decision-making about forest ecology. I mean, this is where ethical values come from, is such reflection and discussion. If you think the problem is difficult, then that's probably a, a reason for thinking that we need a lot more philosophical reflection on these goals before we start betting literally the entire planet on them. 
You mentioned nihilism earlier, uh, Megan, uh, as it happens. Tomorrow, uh, Wendy Seifert, the Australian writer, is on. She has a new book out, The Sunny Nihilist, How a Meaningless Life Can Make You Truly Happy. Should be read probably side by side with your good life method, reasoning through big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. Uh, Isn't though the nihilist tradition, isn't that very strong in philosophy? Um, Nietzsche, of course, uh, enormously influential, late 19th, early 20th century philosopher. Uh, you write in your book about Kierkegaard. How do you counter nihilism in your work? I wouldn't think of Nietzsche or Kierkegaard as nihilist. There are certainly some nihilists in the tradition, but it's a, it's a pretty hard uh, view to sustain. That's why I'm super interested in reading Wendy's book. I think it's a totally ironic slash wonderful feature of history that we have the same publication date for the Good Life Method and the Sunny Nihilist. Because we'll have to get you both. uh, We'll have to get Wendy and you on the show at the same time. Oh my gosh, we would love to have that discussion. That will be uh, uh, bomb throwing in a good nihilist tradition. Absolutely. Well, and the the threat of nihilism is everywhere. Anytime you start to think, I think is a lot. What do you define it as? What do you mean by nihilism? And, And Again, I'm not a philosopher, but I, I do think that Nietzsche was a nihilist. But anyway, um, what what is your definition of nihilism? I would define nihilism as the view that there are no meaningful goals or activities in a human life or available to a human life. And that's why I don't think Nietzsche was a nihilist, because Nietzsche thought there was something quite valuable in him, like pursuing his goal to be the ubermensch. Um, or for the strong to uh, learn how to in- unleash their natural virtues. Um, whereas real serious nihilism, this idea of embracing this theoretical posit, there is no goal for a human life. And so any activity that seems to aim for a meaningful goal is going to be pointless, at least if activities depend on having a goal for having a point. Is utilitarianism a kind of nihilism, the idea that the only way to measure any value is through our own happiness in an almost quantifiable sense? No, I think we should be careful to separate out nihilism from what we might worry are self-defeating moral theories. And there, there can be a lot of moral theories that are self-defeating, and it's arguable whether utilitarianism falls into this camp. But utilitarianism definitely has a goal. The goal is for us to produce as much good, as much happiness or experience pleasure or whatever in the world as possible, to optimize on this one really important external variable. And so that gives you a really clear goal. Um, so that's not well, a nihilist. Um, I, I know you're quite critical of the consequ- consequentialists. Um, we've had all sorts of shows about the value of changing the world. What do you tell your students? We had Thibault Mannequin, for example, the Baltimore-based social activist, social entrepreneur on the show. Ma- many other shows. We had David Badanis suggesting that nice guys don't finish last in terms of changing the world. What do you tell your students about changing the world as opposed to doing philosophy? Is that the core responsibility of a philosopher? I think that a lot of young people now, and this has gotten worse in the last few years, have been hearing this refrain from adults, from educational institutions, from the technology industry, that their lives matter only insofar as they're able to affect a lot of things outside of their life. They're able to make as much money as possible. They're able to uh, affect as many other people's lives or influence as many other people's lives as possible. And so they're, they're 
taught to develop these dashboards for understanding the meaning and value in their life that totally depend on factors external to themselves. And one of the reasons why Paul and I wrote this book, one of the key drivers that we have in our work teaching philosophy is to let people know that you don't have to be stuck in that mindset. In fact, that there's a way of living a good life and becoming a good person that requires caring for your own soul. It's gonna push you into other people's lives and it's gonna give you moral goals but it's not going to be this unilateral demanding drive to optimize on a single dimension of your life. And that, I think, is quite liberating. There's another kind of nihilism besides philosophical nihilism. Maybe we want to call it personal nihilism. This is the idea that there is a goal for a good life. It's just you're never going to achieve it. You personally are not going to have a meaningful life. And that is a serious risk for some of these consequentialist philosophies as a young person hears them and realizes they are never going to have that kind of capacity to optimize the world the way, say, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates does. And so they conclude that their lives are meaningless, and that's garbage. That's not a good philosophical view. It's also no way to live a happy life. It's nice to hear a philosopher use the word garbage. Say it again, <laughs> Megan. Garbage. It's complete it has a garbage. particular resonance when it's said by a philosopher. Let me bring Paul back in finally. Uh, Paul, one character who pops up in your book, who I actually have to admit I didn't expect, was W.E.B. Du Bois, a man who seems to pop up in most of our conversations these days. In, our, in an America where, for better or worse, we seem to be obsessed with race, racial identity, racial crimes, what, what, how can Du Bois help us? live the good life? What is it about Du Bois that makes him important reading for the big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning in, in the America of 2022, in an America still riven one way or the other by racial division and dislike? Yeah, good. So uh, I might kick this over to Megan uh, after I, I respond here. She's kind of our, our Du Bois uh, uh, scholar. Uh, I'll say um, in the class uh, and in the book, uh, Although I don't think uh, Baldwin actually makes it uh, into the book, but in, in the class... Yeah, Baldwin's another guy who comes up always, James Baldwin, yeah. of course. So in the class, uh, when we talk about um, uh, philosophy and in particular philosophy and, and navigating the social world with respect to some of the questions that you're bringing up, uh, I show a clip of, of James Baldwin talking to a philosopher from Yale. I don't even know who the philosopher is anymore. Uh, this is uh, uh, from the recent documentary, I think it was acquired or released by Netflix at least um, or in, in the US. Um, and one thing that's, that's really striking about the exchange there uh, on a late night talk show uh, and the, the philosopher, the sort of prominent philosopher from Yale, uh, you know, one thing he says is he says, look, you know, can't we just ignore social realities if we're pursuing the truth and won't pursuing the truth, won't that in itself bring us together, right? Uh, so I guess echoing in, uh, in a way what I was saying a second ago, uh, but one thing that's really important to recognize and something that, you know, we're cognizant of in, in the class and in our book is that there are a lot of different perspectives from which people come to these big questions, right? Uh, and then ignoring differences in those perspectives uh, is going to tend to distort uh, the conversation that you end up having. So, uh, again, you know, James Baldwin in this exchange really powerfully uh, articulates the ways in which um, for somebody who is under persistent threat or for somebody uh, for whom certain institutions are just not available, right? Or certain practices or conventions aren't uh, ready to hand, uh, their ability to even participate, to even begin to talk uh, uh, in these conversations uh, is inhibited, right? Uh, and without that, you're missing part of the picture. 
Um, so, you know, that's that's uh, an important consideration that, that we talk about as, as we go through the class. I don't know, Megan, if you have other Yeah, let, let's find, bring in Megan for a final word on the great W.E.B. Du Bois, um, African-American sociologist, and according to Wikipedia, at least, socialist, historian, civil rights, African, uh, civil rights activist, and pan-Africanist, not someone I would expect to pop up in a in a book by a couple of Notre Dame philosophers. We live in such a weird time, I think, where uh, a lot of folks, at least in the United States, seem to think that philosophical inquiry, asking really hard philosophical questions about justice and the good life is somehow uh, at odds or orthogonal to caring deeply about justice, including racial justice. One of the reasons why I love Du Bois is you read him writing right on the eve of World War II. He's totally immersed with Socrates and Plato and absolutely believes that asking hard philosophical questions about the nature of justice, about the nature of race, about what good lives look like for different people, it's going to be the only way that we free our minds from the awful ways that white supremacy keeps us from knowing the truth. He thinks philosophy and uh, racial justice just go hand in hand. They're, they're, philosophy is going to be one of the forces that moves us to trying to understand what the right kinds of goals are in this area. And we see similar assumptions about Socrates and Plato made by Martin Luther King Jr. and by people that follow in his wake in the civil rights movement in this country. And then somehow we kind of find ourselves in 2022 losing the uh, losing our grip on how important philosophy and philosophical questioning and philosophical concern are going to be for helping us get out of these really awful puzzles of injustice. Well, that's good stuff. Fascinating conversation. We went over a little bit, but uh, we got two philosophers on the show today, so we're, it's double amounts of wisdom. Uh, their new book, uh, Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, Reasoning Through Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. It's based on their very popular uh, class at Notre Dame, and it's well worth reading and thinking about. They bring a great deal of wisdom uh, to this subject. Uh, finally, guys, um, Happy New Year to you both. What, in, in addition to your new book, The Good Life Method, what else should people be reading um, in the new year in 2022? Let me start with you, Megan, and then we'll go to Paul. I just spent the last week in kind of a reading-induced fugue. That's how I spend my holidays. I've uh, been rereading the late Bell Hooks, who has some really interesting right. things to interesting, say about yeah. love and the good life. I totally recommend uh, recommend Hooks. I've also been reading Hobbes's Leviathan. If you want some heavy ah, yes. to think about our current moment, oh I think God, that's another subject. Yeah, if you want an option besides sunny nihilism and Aristotle to get you through this next year. Um, you might think about the kind of brutal view of the good life and life together that we get in Leviathan and whether or not you prefer that option. We've had a number of shows actually about Hobbes, including with David Runciman, who, see he, who sees him as the core philosopher of, of the modern age. So, oh, God uh, help us. Uh, well, I, I like uh, Hobbes. Uh, Paul, what about you? What else should people be reading in addition to your new book? All right, good. So I've got four, and they're very different kinds of books. But I just picked up the Oliver Ber Berkman book, Four Thousand Weeks, and I thought, oh that yeah, I, uh, yeah, that, that would be a good one to actually have on the show. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought he makes a case for contemplation uh, in sort of considerations about you know structuring your life and your work. Uh, that just it surprised me. It came out of nowhere, but it read just like you know the best sort of productivity literature. 
so I think that was fantastic. Also say Zena Hits has a book. It came out a bit a bit ago called Lost in Thought. It's along similar lines, but yeah, uh, more... Zena Hicks. Zena Hits, H-I-T-Z, I believe is uh, ah. last name. But that's wonderful. I, I finished that up a, a bit ago. All right, two last ones. Burnout Society by Byung-Chul Han. If you're looking for some really intense continental uh, German philosophy, uh, he's uh, a South Korea-born philosopher. He's just fantastic. And again, uh, you know, his book, very small little book, but very poetic, very lovely, uh, really speaks to the moment, I think. I heard uh, not too much Habermas in that. That gives you a headache, doesn't it, Paul? No, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's totally readable. It's very readable. Uh, it's almost more like a... a in contrast with Habermas. Well, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I wouldn't take Habermas to the beach. I don't know. Uh, and then uh, Hannah Arendt, I guess, The Human Condition. Ah, of yes. Industry. I've been rereading... Uh, and actually, that's the answer to my dumb question to Megan. And name me a, a, a philosopher who is, uh, who is still being read by everyone and, and a rent is the answer. So uh, that's a good yeah. ending. Great conversation, guys. Happy New Year. The Good Life Method by Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschka. We'll have you back on the show. We'll have to have Megan uh, and uh, Wendy uh, Seifred, who's on the show tomorrow, the author of The Sunny Nihilist. We'll have a good, a, a good bare-knuckle philosophical discussion about the value of nihilism. Keep well, happy new year, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.